It's so delightful to see you all here. Uh, it's so delightful to be here. I, I quite rarely come uptown, although this is my uptown week. I'm here, I'll be back uptown somewhere on Sunday, and next week I'll be at the JCC. So it seems to be a new habit. I am going to Brooklyn on Saturday, so that's uh, a different kind of adventure. Um, but I was here once before for an event, and, and felt immediately and saw, of course, what a beautiful place it is and what tremendous good work they're doing. And so I was very happy for the chance to come back. And I've just returned from a book tour, which uh, I, I have to calculate it, actually. I think it was 14 cities or 13 cities in 16 days, something like that. And, uh, the beginning was not so crazy because things were clustered. It was like Boulder, Denver. So I could spend a few nights without getting on an airplane and then Santa Fe, Albuquerque, and then four nights in the Bay Area. But once that ended, it was a plane a day for five days. And I was so tired and confused at one point. It was so interesting. Too. It was a lot like being inside a kaleidoscope. You know, it's like, oh, now I'm here, now I'm here, now I'm here, now I'm here. And I had friends in all these places, and so I'd see them, but it was so brief, you know, so we had just this little bit of time, and they'd tell me what was going on in their life, and then I'd be in the next place, then I'd be in the next place. And it was really like life inside the kaleidoscope. And then I realized, oh, it's always like that, isn't it? It's just we don't always perceive it. But I was so tired by the time I, um, I went to Portland, Oregon, and I uh, spoke one night at a bookstore, and the next morning I went to the airport, and I was giving the guy outside my baggage, you know, to check in, and he said to me, where are you going? And I said, Portland. And he looked at me with the most tremendous compassion <laughs> possible, and he really was trying to give me a chance. He said, Portland, Maine. <laughs> and that's when I realized, oh no, I'm in Portland. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to Seattle. <laughs> and that's how it was, sort of for the rest of the time. So I've, I've finally come back and I've had some sleep and I'm beginning to actually be on this time zone and, and not have quite that sense of uh, impermanent reality shifting sounds all the time, although uh, that wouldn't be a bad thing to recapture to some extent. And uh, I'm just so happy to be back in New York City. <laughs> and, um, it was interesting also uh, with this book, um, because my first book, as you know, and as is the topic of this evening, uh, was called Loving Kindness. And that was a little bit of an odd term. It, even now is not a word that is used that commonly in casual conversation. And my concern always was that that would make loving kindness itself seem somewhat arcane and removed from day-to-day -day life and precious in the negative sense of the word. Uh, but of course, it, it doesn't mean that at all. It's something much more vibrant and rele relevant to day-to-day -day life and alive. And, all of that. And then after some years, I wrote a book called Faith. And that was really difficult in terms of a title. 
even working on it, many times people would say to me, what are you working on? And I'd say, I'm writing a book on faith. And I'd hear all kinds of different reactions from interest and delight to amusement to anger. Because while some people really celebrated that word and it was a very uh, important word for them, for other people the word faith had a lot of negative associations, um, including being silenced and not being able to ask questions and losing a sense of self-respect uh, in the journey of faith. And of course that's not what it's meant to be at all. In the Buddhist tradition, faith is not a commodity that we have or we don't have, and if we don't have enough and we don't have the right kind, we're going to be condemned. It's something very different than that. It's really, it is a journey of discovery that is actually strengthened by doubt and questioning and always, always by a developing and growing self-respect. And so that was a little bit of a funny word. Um, at one point, I said to somebody, I thought that actually maybe one of my goals, because people were telling me, don't name the book that, don't name the book that, call it trust, call it this, call it that, don't call it faith, but I couldn't really see what else to call it besides faith. And at one point I said to somebody, well, maybe part of my effort is to help us reclaim the word so that we can use it in a different way that is more personally meaningful and maybe doesn't have all those overlays of those very difficult experiences people might have had. So my current book, the one I was just on tour with, is called Real Happiness. And it's not a title I chose, frankly. Um, <laughs> look at the tape when I say that. It's something that the publisher chose. The book uh, was going to be called Why Meditate? Because I wanted to write a book that basically described why meditate. and that was a how-to book in a way that was extremely practical and very, very inclusive so that nobody felt they were left out of the possibility if they were interested in utilizing these tools for, for self-discovery. So the book was called Why Meditate? It wasn't even a working title, it was the title. And then I received an advanced copy of a friend's book, Matthew Ricard, and it was called Why Meditate? <laughs> So, uh, there had to be another title rather quickly, and the publisher chose Real Happiness. And um, there was a part of me that thought that was great. Uh, the part of me that, I mean, honestly, if, if it were more poetic, I think a more accurate title would have been something like Durable Happiness or Sustainable Happiness. Uh, and that I could get behind. I mean, that's what we all really want. You know, we go through so many ups and downs. And that was part of what was so powerful about my kaleidoscope tour of the United States just in these last few weeks was getting these glimpses into people's lives and saying, woo, that doesn't look easy and that doesn't look easy and that's hard and you're, you know, and that's happening for you. And it was just like, you see, we go through so much not all at once and not all the time, but the potential uh, given this world of change is quite a lot. And we all want some kind of sustainable happiness. Happiness in that sense doesn't mean giddiness or being happy-go-lucky or ignoring the pain and only seeking pleasure kind of desperately. It's gotta mean something else. And in that sense, it's a perfect 
replication, I think, of the Buddha's quest, his own personal quest. Uh, as a human being, it's said that he had some very human questions about life. Like, what does it mean to be born in this human body? To be so vulnerable as an infant to the actions of those around us and to grow up, to grow older, to get sick, to die, whether we want that or not. And is there a kind of happiness that can sustain even as the body goes through its thing? And what does it mean to have a human mind so that we, we might wake up in the morning and we're really afraid and then we're angry and then we're full of doubt and then we're full of faith and then this happens and then that happens without actually being able to control it without being able to say, well, I thought about it really carefully and I've suffered enough, so I'm never going to be afraid again or this is never going to happen again. So what does it mean to have a human mind with this cascade of changing feelings? And is there a quality of happiness that can sustain, that can be durable anyway? And so it said that anything he discovered in terms of answers, he discovered through the power of his own awareness, and so can we. So in that way, the idea of real happiness or durable happiness was very appealing to me. But I also knew it was going to be big trouble. <laughs> and it, that came out, the very first interview I had for the book, the very first question was something like, are you saying that the kind of happiness I have when I'm having a lovely dinner with my wife isn't real? And I sat there and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and I said, as I believe, of course I think it's real. And if anything, we should treasure those moments even more. We should be filled with gratitude for the kind of pleasure that comes our way. Because it's not the only thing that comes our way. And it doesn't come in that way for everybody in equal measure. We should be very grateful but we cannot count on it, clearly. I thought, what if you don't like your dinner one night? I thought, but didn't say, what if you don't like your wife one night? <laughs> you know? Everything changes, it moves. That's just in the nature of things. So what is that happiness that can sustain, that can endure? It has a lot to do with qualities of the heart. So it was very funny. There I was again with a, a title that will have a life of its own. And, and uh, first I felt like I was trying to help reclaim the word real as distinct from unreal. And then I was trying to reclaim the word happiness because I think people are a little tired of that word. And all along there's been a certain sense for a lot of people that um, I forget what the bumper sticker is. It's something like, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention. Something like that. But if you are depressed, how much juice do you have within to try to make this a better world, to serve, to take care of someone, to make some efforts in some way? We don't have a lot. When we feel shattered, we feel broken, we're exhausted, we're overcome. Uh, I have a, a sublet apartment downtown, and uh, which is why I rarely come uptown. And, and uh, I often teach um, downtown. And uh, the other day, I was walking from my apartment to where I was teaching, and 
uh, I was walking by this church which had a big sign about the Sunday sermon of last week and the title of the sermon was Overwhelmed. And I walked by uh, again and I saw they hadn't taken it away yet for this next week's sermon and it still says Overwhelmed. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe they'll keep that a while, <laughs> you know, because a lot of people feel kind of overwhelmed. But what happens when that's our, our general state? Clearly, you know, there's not the energy to, to reach out, to serve, to share, to be generous. And so in that sense, our own happiness is not the selfish thing we might take it to be. Like, oh, you know, you just want to be happy and you're not paying attention to anything else or anyone else. And, uh, I ran into a lot of that too, that kind of assumption that happiness meant um, cut off in some way or isolated from the whole. And yet of course it's not meant to be that at all. In that sense our own happiness is a radical act. First of all because it's not based on conventional things, uh, which is having and getting and acquiring and accumulating and competing and so on. It's based on something else altogether. and it doesn't have to be like fixed every year, you know, by getting a new whatever. And it's like resourcefulness. It's, it's resiliency. It's that sense of inner abundance that allows us to reach out, in fact, in reality. So sometimes we talk about um, generosity and we talk about loving kindness as a practice of generosity not necessarily material generosity at all but kind of generosity of the spirit but we use material generosity as a model as a way of trying to understand it and one of the things that we see generosity can come from very beautifully is a sense of inner abundance that when uh, even more than uh, kind of understanding or set of guidelines, ethical guidelines that say you should practice generosity or uh, even more than any of that, it's some sense of inner abundance that allows us to give. And that's why uh, we may all know people, families, um, groupings, cultures, where externally, materially, one might not have a lot, but there's tremendous generosity and people just give. So I experienced that certainly, for example, when I was practicing meditation in Burma, which is a very poor country. And in the uh, retreat centers of Burma, you don't pay anything. You don't even pay room and board often to to stay there and practice because everything that you need is provided to you through the generosity of the people. So f as an example, in Burma on your birthday, you don't expect to get gifts, you expect to give gifts. That's how you celebrate. Mm -hmm. Or maybe something happens, your daughter graduates from high school or someone in your family dies. You go off to the monastery and you you mark the event by giving, by feeding people, by offering food to the people who are meditating. And meditation itself is so highly prized in the culture that 
uh, people are so delighted to give because you're practicing. And it'd be quite remarkable to be there in these very, and people when they can, they'd come to the offering. They didn't cook the food, but they'd made the, um, they'd provided the money for it to be made. And they liked to come and watch you eat it as a celebration, or you know, if it was uh, somebody having died as a commemoration um, for, you know, of their lives, they liked to watch you eat the food. And they would take such delight in their ability to offer that food to you. And, and it'd be so amazing to be there uh, coming from this society and to experience this enormous generosity from very, very poor people. And then sometimes to come back and run into not a few people who by any external measure had so much more um, than the people of Burma did, but so often didn't even have the inner feeling of having enough and so they had a much less, much less of an ability to give and to share and to offer. It was so striking. And to realize that it's that inner state that determines so much, not an external measure. And so we look at this question of inner abundance. It, when I say happiness, I mean inner abundance. Some sense of sufficiency, wholeness, that is not tied to an external measure. And if we have that, we can sustain our efforts in this world. We can sustain our generosity. We can offer, we can serve. If we don't have that, we are overwhelmed. <laughs> and we just have to withdraw, pull back. And so that's why we say our happiness is like a radical act. It's not just feeling good and going home and saying, I feel good, you don't, who cares? Um, you know, as long as I feel good. It's really the source of something tremendous in this world. And so uh, we look at all these different elements, all these different contributing factors. And it's very personal, this kind of exploration in terms of our own uh, inner happiness and that wellspring of abundance, connection, wholeness that allows us to go on, not only for ourselves, but for others. So loving kindness is a huge element in that inner sense, loving kindness for ourselves, loving kindness for others. We, uh, loving kindness literally means friendship. In the translation from Pali, the word, Pali being the language of the original Buddhist text, the word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. If you look at some of the literature from my retreat center, which is downstairs, the Insight Meditation Society, um, if there are any photos of the building on that literature, it's a large brick building that we bought. We moved in 1976 in, in New England. Um, and it, has this word up on top of the building, metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is the word that's usually translated as loving kindness. When we first bought the building, when we moved in, it was owned by the Catholic Church. It was a novitiate, which is why it has some uh, kind of fun recreational elements like a one-lane bowling alley. Um, when we first moved in, we, it came with a room full of bowling shoes. And 
It had these pins, and the, the Dalai Lama came to visit in 1979 and went bowling, because <laughs> um, we still had it all set up at that point. Uh, and it was being run by the, the order that was running it was the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So that's what it set up above the doorway, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And we moved in on Valentine's Day, actually, of 1976, and got someone to get up on a very tall ladder on a very cold day, and we said, can you please rearrange those letters so it says something about us? So they played around with all those letters, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and came up with metta, which is loving kindness. And um, what ensued from that was a lot of discussion and debate. People said, well, no one knows what that word means. We're not in India anymore. Why don't we have an English word that makes no sense? You can't do that. But the point of view, which wanted to keep it up, prevailed, which I was very happy about because it was my point of view. And the reason I like it is because I like the fact that when, say, delivery people call for directions, whoever answers the phone says it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it's got this word up on top, meta. And they say, what does that mean? And we get to say, that means love, or that means loving kindness, which I think is a beautiful representation of what we want to put out into the world. The problem with loving kindness is, as I said before, it's a bit awkward because not everybody would use that word in a, a relevant, immediate way in their lives. The word love is very complicated for us. We mean so many different things when we say love. Sometimes, although some people actually, some scholars actually prefer that as a translation, it's just complicated. Sometimes we mean really frankly a medium of exchange, like I will love you as long as you love me in return. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And I once used that example with a group and someone in the group called out only 15 conditions. <laughs> I will love you as long as however many conditions are met. And it's not even to condemn that state at all, but it's so fragile. We know that state. It's so vulnerable. It's so fragile. It's so breakable. I mean, really, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. How long is that going to last? And so there's nothing sustainable. There's nothing durable. There's nothing that's really going to support us in the long run in that kind of very brittle, dependent sort of state. And so we mean something very different that is much more tied uh, to this capacity within to feel whole to feel connected, to be happy, and so on. So certainly there are lots of ways of deepening loving kindness. Um, one way, I think, is really implicit. When we do any kind of meditation practice, there's a huge emphasis on being able to begin again. And this is true really for any endeavor, meditation practice being symbolic of so many other things that we do. 
So as many of you know, I first practiced meditation in India. I went in 1970. And uh, I went specifically to learn meditation practice. And I began that in January of 1971. So that was like a long time ago now. And when I uh, finally found the kind of meditation training I was looking for, it was an intensive 10-day meditation retreat. So I walked into that retreat, the beginning of that retreat, never having meditated for one single second before in my entire life, and went in, and the first instruction, the first meditation instruction I got, which is the first meditation we'll do here together, was sit down and feel your breath. Just that, sit down and feel your breath. And I was really disappointed. I thought, feel my breath. I came all the way to India. <laughs> you know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to clear away all my suffering and make me a perfectly happy person? Feel my breath. And then I thought, how hard can this be? It was like, ha, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> And I thought, eh, what will it be like, you know, 700 breaths, 800 breaths before my mind wanders? And of course, what it was was like two. One, two, three, gone. And this is not uncommon. We settle our attention on whatever object of concentration we may be working with. And it's not just when we're meditating. We notice this if we sit down to think something through, to work through a dilemma to get to the bottom of something. It's usually not the case that our attention is all that steady, steadfast, centered. Usually our attention, our energy is flying all over the place. We're sitting, it's one breath, two breaths, three breaths, let's say we're doing that, and we're gone. Our minds go to the past and we go over and over and over and over some situation which we now regret. But we're not going over it in some way that helps us see a way to make amends, we're just stuck going over and over and over something from the past. Or our minds jump to the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. It's funny having just done this extraordinary amount of traveling and having just been to Portland because this was an example I just made up. I was um, teaching with a a uh, friend, Bob Thurman, who's a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia. And, uh, you know, some time ago we were teaching in New York together. And I just used this example. I said, it's like you're sitting in an airplane in New York City on the tarmac. And you realize, oh no, this plane is going to be late. That might mean I'll miss my connection. Oh no, I'm sure to miss my connection. Oh no, what's going to happen? That means I'm going to land in Portland. It'll be after midnight. It's not New York. There's not going to be any cabs. What's going to happen to me? As though Portland had a history or something of people like perishing after midnight when they arrive. And it was like, oh no, after midnight in Portland. What's it going to be? No cabs. And just as a side note, I have a, almost a kind of mantra or a saying I, I use with my own mind when I see my mind beginning to go in that arc, I just say, something will happen. 
Like something will happen. You'll either spend the night in the Portland airport or you'll find a cab or there'll be a bus or someone will give you, something will happen, right? So anyway, I use that example in front of Bob and the reason I say that as, as context is because maybe six weeks later I got an email from him which said, just landed in Portland, lots of cabs. <laughs> and I was like, okay, which I also noticed having just been there. You know, but I might just jump to the future. We create a scenario. Oh no, it's going to be Portland. We'll get to one in the morning. You know, and we just do that, even if we're not going to Portland. <laughs> you know, we sit down, and feel a few breaths, and suddenly it's. You know, so our minds jump to the past. They jump to the future. Judgment, speculation, all over the place. And in the process of deepening concentration, it's like we gather that attention back. We return to whatever chosen object we're working with. Maybe 10 seconds later, we're gone again. We have to do it again, very gently, not harshly, not condemning ourselves, not punishing ourselves. We have to be able to let go and just begin again. Bring our attention back. And over time, what happens is we do develop a steadfastness of attention, not a strained, repressed holding of our attention, but like centeredness, groundedness, just over time of beginning again and beginning again and beginning again. Now this isn't easy to do. It's much more common for us to, say, settle on a chosen object like the feeling of the breath, find our attention gone somewhere and go into such a huge amount of recrimination. I can't believe I'm thinking. Why am I thinking? I'm an idiot. I'm so terrible. I'm the worst meditator that ever lived. How can this be? Here I am. I'm thinking again. They're not thinking. No one else in this room is thinking. They're sitting here in bliss. They're sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. Why am I thinking? I'm the only one who's thinking. They're not thinking. Or maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking loving thoughts. They're thinking thoughts of loving kindness. I'm the one who's sitting here about Portland and their cab situation. Why am I, I have no plans to go to Portland. And anyway, I worked it all out in the last, you know, the last sitting, I figured it all out. There's gotta be a bus, I'm gonna find the bus, I'm gonna do that, you know, it's just like, that's more common than just like gently letting go and beginning again. But our practice is empowered by that gentle letting go and beginning again and beginning again. To do that means we need to be deepening loving kindness and compassion for ourselves. Otherwise, there's no way to let go. There's no way to start over. So inevitably, even if the words are never spoken, even if it's never articulated, this is an intrinsic part of our path to begin again, not to feel like a failure, to understand this is natural, that we can begin again over and over and over again. So um, in the book, Real Happiness, uh, I talk about meditation as a skills training in three ways. One is concentration, which you know, we just went into. One is mindfulness. And if concentration is a way of steadying our attention, mindfulness is a way of uncluttering our attention. So sometimes when we pay attention to something, it's so laden with things from the past, you know, things we're afraid of or 
don't like or don't think we're capable of or whatever it might be that our attention is actually quite distorted because of all of these habits of mind. So mindfulness is a way of clearing a lot of them away. So that's why I call it refining our attention so that we can perceive much more accurately, much more truthfully what's actually going on. And then um, the third skill is loving kindness or compassion, which is actually considered a skill. Sometimes I see in, in this society, um, compassion is almost taken as, uh, a, seems almost like a kind of gift with the thought that some people have it and some people don't, and if you don't, you're out of luck. Or it's taken to be a very immediate, spontaneous emotional reaction and not something we can train in. From the point of view of meditation or Buddhism, uh, compassion and loving kindness are definitely skills. They're ways that they can be trained. Not forcing yourself to feel something you really don't, which is what a lot of people are afraid of. Um, I teach a loving kindness retreat, an intensive loving kindness retreat at my center every winter. And one year, seven days long, one year somebody came, and I don't know why he came. Uh, probably he came with someone who wanted him to be there because the first thing he said to me early on in the retreat was, I hate loving kindness practice. <laughs> I detest it, is what he said. I absolutely detest loving kindness practice because it reminds me of a continually enforced Valentine's Day. Like on the count of three, you will be filled with love. You're forced to, you're compelled to pretend you feel something you really don't. And uh, I'm happy to report that by the end of the retreat, he felt very differently about the practice. But that's the kind of idea we can have, that you're trying to force yourself to like everybody and you get kind of stupid at the same time and you let people take advantage of you or you let them harm other people and you don't do something strong or even fierce to try to change that. Um, but of course it's not like that at all. And so we one of the things we do in the course of training loving kindness is, is try to understand just what that state is. Not trying to pretend you feel something you don't, not trying to uh, you know, smile at everybody even if they're like stealing your wallet, um, you know, and not telling everyone, yes, you can take all my things, doesn't matter, I'm practicing loving kindness. You know, we don't lose intelligence and discernment and a very rigorous kind of uh, critical thinking. But what happens in that training is that we really open our attention. So if concentration steadies our attention and mindfulness refines our attention, loving kindness opens our attention so that we can pay attention uh, in also much more accurate ways. We can move out, some, out of some of the ruts the strict habits that we have um, that keep us confined. So for example, uh, let's say you have the habit at the end of the day of kind of looking back at yourself, at your actions of the day. And let's say you have the habit of doing that in a very negative kind of way so that you only pretty well remember the mistakes you made or the things you did wrong or 
the things you don't like or that really stupid thing you said at lunch at that meeting let's just say and let's say that habit is so strong that your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses around that stupid thing you said at lunch so the practice of loving-kindness the training in loving-kindness would almost be like asking yourself anything else happened today like anything good any good within me and it's not to pretend and make believe it's not like you're insisting oh wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch at that meeting maybe it was really stupid and there are consequences to that but that's not all that we are ever so we open we open in a way that actually becomes much more truthful much more accurate because we're never just that mistake so one of the ways I describe loving-kindness practice is playing with our attention because it takes something you know we're used to looking at what's wrong with us we're used to looking at the negative it's not going to happen automatically that suddenly we see the good within ourselves it takes some intentionality but it can be playful just to open in those different ways it's like having a great adventure or making a great experiment we think about all the times maybe we're talking to somebody and our attention's really fragmented we're not really listening to them we're thinking about the next thing we have to do and the next email we want to send and the next person we need to talk to and and then you realize you know what it wouldn't take that much to actually gather your attention and be there much more fully so you make the experiment in doing that I talk sometimes about how I grew up here in New York City in Washington Heights and you know went off to college went to India came back um, moved to Massachusetts eventually and very rarely came back into New York until maybe like 10 years ago when I was working on the book Faith and somebody said to me friend said to me she was going up to my center to do a long retreat to do a three-month retreat she said well take my apartment in New York and you can just work on it there so that seemed great so I came back into New York City as an adult and I really really liked it um, but I noticed say if I'm in an elevator having grown up here I walk into the elevator I don't look at anybody I don't smile at anybody I turn around and I stare at the door right because it's how I was brought up and occasionally you know there are numbers you can look at that's fun <laughs> but you know and then so I talk a lot about just getting into that elevator now and somebody striking up a conversation with me and how my first instinct is like what do you want <laughs> you know it's just wrong and but if I can see that then I can play it's like what am I gonna lose really by talking to this person maybe I have no one else to talk to think of that what an interesting adventure to pay attention where we normally just close down or we look right through someone like they don't count or we ignore them or we discount them or we disregard them what happens when we actually include rather than exclude 
that's the great experiment of loving kindness. Or what happens when we're having a negative experience with somebody, genuinely so, but we remember there are layers and layers and layers to their being, just as there are many layers to our own. So this is my most recent story about that. I, uh, before this last bout of travel with my book, um, in December I went to Hawaii to teach, uh, which was not a great hardship in a lot of ways. Um, I went because uh, my friend Ramdas, who was an old friend from my time when I was first practicing in India, so that's like 40 years, uh, is living there. And uh, you know he had a stroke some years ago and he doesn't really travel anymore, although he still teaches. And um, so I went to do this retreat with him and, and Ramdas um, largely has practiced within Hindu traditions and, and many of the ways he expresses his deepest understanding and aspiration might be encapsulated as something like look for the divine in everyone. Look for the divine in yourself. Look for the divine in everyone. Whether you like them or not, whether you're having a certain kind of relationship with them or another kind of relationship with them, even if you're going to do something that is like strong and setting a boundary and saying no or whatever it is, look for the divine in them. So that was, is such a big part of what he teaches. And I heard that over and over again for the five days of this retreat we were doing together. So then it came to be time to leave and I went to the airport and I had two flights scheduled, one uh, Maui to San Francisco and then San Francisco to Boston because I was going home to Massachusetts for Christmas. And um, I got to the airport and as soon as I got there I found out that that second flight, San Francisco to Boston, had been canceled because there had been some snow in Boston. What I heard later was a little bit of snow. Uh, and they canceled the flights. So there I was in Maui and I went up to the ticket counter uh, where there was a woman working trying to get a new flight. And it was very difficult timing because it was getting to be somewhat close to Christmas and it was hard to find another flight. Plus she was quite, quite, quite difficult. <laughs> very, very, very difficult to work with. And uh, she also didn't like me much. And <laughs> she would yell at me quite a lot and I would ask her a question. At one point she started yelling at me, stop asking me questions. You know nothing. You know nothing. I've been doing this for 20 years. I know everything. You know nothing. And I thought, okay. Uh, but the time came when I had to ask her another question or at least I felt I did. So I asked her a question and she started really yelling at me and she said, look lady, it's weather. What do I look like to you, God? And I looked at her and I said, funny you should say that. <laughs> I just spent five days with Ramdas. And all he said was, look for the divine in everyone. It's like, I totally forgot when it came to you. What if I try? And that's what I mean. It's just playing with your attention. It doesn't mean I suddenly thought she was the greatest ticket agent in the world. <laughs> I didn't. It doesn't mean that I forgot what I clearly knew, which was that she wasn't trying to help me and that 
she was making things worse, and that was true. You know, I finally, I was with her for almost two hours, and then I, as soon as I left her, I called my travel agent, I still have a travel agent, I left a message from him, I said, you've got to help me. <laughs> and he did. And he told me, he called me as soon as I landed in Denver, which is where I had to go, that night, he said, whoever you were dealing with in Maui was just a disaster. And I said, yeah, I know, but what's it like to look for the divine in everyone? It doesn't mean you pretend it's all okay and they're behaving right and, you know, oh, I'll just take that horrible flight and spend, you know, eight hours here waiting for the flight and eight hours in Denver waiting for the night. It doesn't mean that. But what is it like to really stretch our worldview, to include rather than exclude, to really try to be coming from a place where it's not self and other and us and them, but it's we. It's a very different perspective. So that's the practice of loving kindness.